0: This is Father Mark Bulos with The Bible as Literature podcast. When Jesus said to Peter, "I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven," it is usually misunderstood as the gift of personal power, as though Peter himself is invested with divine authority. This is an incorrect reading. The keys entrusted to Peter are the words handed down to the church in the content of Paul's gospel, the teaching Peter betrayed in Galatians. These keys do not belong to Peter. They are entrusted to him and to the other disciples to preach, teach, and discern the path of righteousness for the Lord's flock neither the keys nor the flock belongs to peter it is the teaching itself not peter that bears god's authority holding sway over all of the disciples for the sake of the weaker brother richard and i discussed the gospel of matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 19 this week's episode was presented live at the 2020 Symposium of the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies in honor of the Jubilee Year of Father Paul Tarazi's teaching ministry. You're
1: listening to the Bible as Literature.
0: This is Father Mark Bulos
1: and this is Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 333 a special presentation of the Bible as literature podcast broadcast live at this year's symposium of the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies. This year's program is presented in honor of the Jubilee Year of Father Paul's ministry as a teacher. That means he's been working for 50 years to spread the gospel of the kingdom for the sake of the poor.
1: I couldn't be more grateful than for the past 50 years and how much work he's done, and to acknowledge that it's only on his shoulders that this podcast stands that you and me, Father Mark, I know you don't mind me saying, but we would have no podcast. We would have no knowledge. We wouldn't know which way to go next if it weren't for the teaching that we received from Father Paul. So,
0: Father Paul, this week's episode is for you. We've been talking about Matthew chapter 18 and the consistent and persistent emphasis on the care for the weaker brother. The first time I heard this expression, the weaker brother, was at seminary in Father Paul's class. Christians like to talk about the love of neighbor, but it was Father Paul who first drew my attention to this biblical premise that it is the weaker brother, the weaker neighbor in particular, to whom we are accountable. And Matthew keeps hitting this over and over again, and we have to hear this next section about how to address the sin of your brother in the church, we have to hear it in context of this repeating emphasis on the needy neighbor, specifically the weaker brother in Matthew chapter 18.
1: We just had the parable of the shepherd going after his one sheep that went astray the shepherd would rejoice more over that one sheep than the rest of the 99. This one that goes astray is why the Son of Man came. Jesus emphasized that we remove any piece of our body that might cause us to scandal, and that if we scandalize our weaker brother, a fate worse than drowning awaits us. We cannot begin this next section without having those pieces firmly in the foundation of our understanding, because we will misunderstand this next section. People take these out of context because they don't read all of chapter 18. Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, repeated this section about removing the part of us that causes us to be scandalized all the way back in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, which is unique to Matthew, whereas this section is common to Matthew and Mark. Matthew decided to include it again in his gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. Not scandalizing the little one is the most important for our own self-preservation and for the preservation of the community and the congregation.
0: In last week's episode, as you noted, Richard, we talked about the flock of 100 sheep and how the shepherd goes after the one sheep which is a clear example of how one takes care of the weaker brother, the one who is vulnerable. But now we shift gears in verse 15. Instead of talking about what to do when the one goes astray and how to bring them back and the responsibility to bring them back, we're now entering into a new territory, which is reminiscent of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, where he talks about handing someone over to Satan. If you come to a point where you have to make a decision about how to deal with somebody who's misbehaving, you had better follow the rule that was laid down for Peter in chapter 16. You can't make a decision about someone the way pastors like to do. Pastors love to have opinions about their parishioners. You can't do that. Your opinion is irrelevant. You're not a pastor to exercise your wisdom. You're a pastor, in the same way Peter was supposed to be a pastor and a teacher, to exercise the wisdom that was put in your hand when the keys of the kingdom were entrusted to you. They're not your keys. You didn't write Paul's gospel. The same gospel that holds you accountable to go after the lost sheep also puts handcuffs on you. And guardrails, when you're dealing with someone who may be in violation of God's instruction, of his teaching, you can't just shoot from the hip, so to speak.
1: When I was 16, my friend was driving his dad's car and got in an accident. So later on, I asked, hey, let's go do this thing. Can you drive? He said, my dad won't let me drive since I got in the accident. I'm like, really? And he says, yeah, watch this. Hey, dad, can I drive the car? You're going to pay for that damage you caused? Just because you have the keys doesn't mean it's now your car to do with what you want. You follow your dad's rules, even though you've got his keys in your hand. Having the keys doesn't mean calling the shots. It means you're entrusted to move it in a way that would be considered responsible according to the rules and the wisdom of your father.
0: The way that you and I as human beings would deal with someone we disagree with or someone whom we think is wrong is to just put them out because they bother us or they offend us in some way. But when Paul talks about handing someone over to Satan, it's for their good and the good of the body. The gospel is the custodian of the whole church. That's why it's so important to have the flock complete and to go after the one who is lost. But you're also responsible, as we just heard recently in the lectionary in the Gospel of John, Peter, you're also responsible to tend and to shepherd the flock. That's a Johannine command, but it's functional here because we're talking about the Lord's flock These are his sheep. So if you're going to put somebody out, there's a rule, and there is a value to following the rule and what the outcome will be from the perspective and for the agenda of the gospel, very specifically, as Father Paul explains in his commentary on the gospel of Matthew, here in chapter 18, the Pauline gospel. That is what the keys to the kingdom represent. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. It's interesting, Dr. Benton, that this is how Paul deals with his opponents in Galatians. He goes and he speaks with the pillars in private. If somebody is wrong, or if you believe somebody is wrong, there's a process you follow that protects you from abusing them, because if there needs to be a conflict, you want to make sure that everything is in order so that your conscience is clear that you have conducted yourself correctly. So step one in verse 15, approach them privately and discuss the matter.
1: If you go and do the right thing by approaching your brother, then you gained your brother meaning you brought him back, and this is what your Lord rejoices in, that he came back. If we think about this in the context of removing any piece of ourselves that is causing us scandal within ourselves, then it seems like it's the duty of the Christian to go and find the Christian brother, the one inside the community, to say, hey, I think you're sinning, meaning I think there's something pulling you off the path, which is what the scandal is. So there's something in you that's causing you to scandal. This is the job of any Christian. And I have to say, Father you know, you and I talk about Minnesota culture a lot, but this is the greatest stumbling block of any Minnesotan, because the last thing we want to do is confront someone else within our congregation, within our own community, and say, I think you're not doing the right thing, and doing it in mercy in the same way that the Father goes after the lost sheep. We are so tribal as Christians that We hate to even think that there's something negative about our tribe. We would rather blame our problems on the culture and on secularism and on the demons that come in from outside the Church that we aren't willing to go to those inside the Church and speak to them. I think you're going off the path. Now, we may be willing to post on Facebook that anyone who thinks this, but anyone who posts on Facebook condemnations against certain ideas is not there to win back your brother because you go one-on-one between you and him alone. That's the opposite of social media. You go to your brother or you go to your sister, you go to the person who is your equal and say, I'm afraid that part of you may be scandalizing you. It's pulling you off the path. You and you alone do this. Hopefully— You can win back this weaker brother, not for your sake, and not even for his sake, but ultimately so that your Lord might rejoice.
0: Look, we've talked about Minnesota Nice in the past and its personal relationship with racism in the Minneapolis Police Department. I mean, Minnesota is inherently racist because you are shamed for not blending in as a white man. Now, if your skin happens to be white, you can stop drinking Arabic coffee and you're fine. But if you're black, there's nothing you can do to succumb to that kind of peer pressure. So there's something in this scriptural admonition about approaching this person alone. And I want to be very specific because I drew a comparison with Galatians just to be clear. The word that's used here in Matthew is different than the phraseology Paul uses in Galatians. There he says specifically, kat which means privately. And here in Matthew, the word that they translate as private is monos, which means alone, mono. So the principle is the same, but the terminology is different. And I think the principle is that you give someone a hearing and give them a chance to speak and to explain without subjecting them to the shame of Minnesota nice. That's the link with Galatians. It's just common sense and decency. Anybody who knows anything about management knows that you don't accuse and you don't react until you give the individual a chance to explain, and you do so in a way that protects them. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. This is Deuteronomy. If you go to speak to someone and they don't make sense, or they don't submit to the rule of the gospel in the conversation, not to you, then you bring in two or three witnesses. Why? Why not just another person? Because if you have three witnesses and your reference is Scripture, you have the discussion and there's always a third person to break a tie. But the point is, you don't judge anything on your own. The two or three gathered around the scroll in fellowship with the accused defer to the rule laid down by the apostle as their guide for discerning what to do about this brother who may have stumbled. Note, we are not the judge. We are simply trying to discern what to do with this sheep that seems to be rebelling against the shepherd and jeopardizing
1: the flock. This is the kingdom that God is trying to establish, where we have people who are conducting things correctly among themselves. You have four kids, Father. I have two kids. If one of them has a problem with the other one, what's the first thing we say? Did you talk to them about it? Yeah, but I don't think they're going to... You go settle it with them first. If they come to you every time, it only makes the relationship between them worse. Ultimately, you're trying to have harmony within the house. How can you have harmony within the house if you are trying to establish every single word? All you need is someone who is accusing to have another person to establish the word that's being spoken, the rima. This goes way older than the Romans. I mean, the Babylonians, for the sake of any contract or any important official word that was spoken, you would have to have witnesses so that what was written down is in fact what people said. The word must be established that's being spoken. It has to be sure that what this person is saying against the other person is, in fact, a legitimate complaint. Maybe the other person didn't sin. Maybe you're wrong in the accusation. But you get someone else within the congregation who has done the work that we've seen at the beginning of the chapter— Of removing their own stumbling blocks from inside themselves, and who is following meticulously the Word of God, to come and say whether what you're saying actually does jive with Scripture, because once that's established, that the Word is established, then it makes it harder for the one who is going astray to argue, because it's sure that this is what Scripture is saying and what God is teaching. So in that way, your brother is not meandering from the path of the congregation, but the path of Scripture, which is even more important.
0: If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So you're giving multiple chances for this individual to correct their steps. And at the very end, if they refuse, they're being put outside, handed over to Satan, and they're going back to what they were. Because remember, Matthew is addressed to a mostly Gentile church at this point, which means you have to choose. You want to go back to your old way of living? Okay, that's fine. Go back. You make your choice it's a reminder that the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins is no guarantee. The fact that you're given a second chance in God's Roman household doesn't mean that you're in. You can be taken out. You can go back to being what you were before. Matthew is laying down very clear guidelines to... Prevent you from acting out your self-righteousness and judging the weaker brother. God in the New Testament is a Roman patrician. It is his household, and he will make sure that his household is under his control and kept whole. By the rule of the gospel, God will have his house in order.
1: If you have a sheep who continuously goes its own way. Your job as shepherd is to make sure you don't lose that sheep. But if eventually it hightails it out of there and there's no finding it anymore, you can't be responsible anymore because you've brought it back as many times as you possibly can. If you don't go after it, okay, fine. But if it insists on leaving, then there's no more choice. The kingdom of heaven is not compulsory. If You are a citizen of the kingdom, then you walk the line, you follow the path, and if anything were to pull you off that path and scandalize you, you have to remove that piece because the worst thing is to be scandalized and to scandalize someone else because the worst thing is to end up off the path. But if you have established with someone one-on-one, this is the path— And then with two or three, this is the path. And then with the entire congregation, this is the path. And the person doesn't want to walk the path. They don't want the path. They want their own path. What are you supposed to do then? It's interesting because he doesn't say, make them like a Pharisee or a scribe. Pharisees and scribes said that they want the path, and they're looking for the path. A Gentile or a tax collector, they're off doing their own thing. They aren't interested in the path whatsoever. So then you let them go. These people do not want our path. We're not going to compel them. Their fate is with their God. Truly, I say to you,
0: whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Here, the language clearly points back to chapter 16 of Matthew, where Peter correctly confesses the identity of Jesus, because of the teaching that the Father put in him. That teaching, which isn't Peter's teaching, is the foundation. That teaching, which is not Peter's teaching, it's a teaching that was put in him. That teaching is the key that Jesus refers to. So Peter has no right to judge anyone. None of us do. Remember, this is the Gospel of Matthew It's not like you're deciding whether this person is wicked. No way. You are gathering together two or three to study God's instruction, which is the rule laid down. The instruction is the set of keys. And you are, to the best of your ability, discerning on the basis of that rule. And whether or not someone is bound or whether or not they're set free is not your purview because the forgiveness of sins is the content of the teaching. The judgment is the content of the teaching. So read and explain the teaching. Let it control the situation. It's not as though Peter decides. There's no deciding for Peter. That's why you bring witnesses, to hold each other accountable
1: to the scroll of the law. One of the reasons for bringing in the witnesses and bringing in the congregation is to make sure that the word you're speaking is not your word. It has to be the word of Scripture. It has to be God's word that's being spoken against that person, not your personal idea or feeling that the person is being offensive or something like this. In order for you to get to this point where you are able to bind in the heavens and the earth, it's when you've purified your word of anything impure that doesn't come from God. It has to be God's word purely. And if that is established, then what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And the same with Peter. When Peter confessed correctly, as you said, Father, he was given the word that what he binds on earth will be bound in heaven. But as soon as he went against what Scripture said about the fate of the Son of Man, he was called Satan, and Jesus says, You are a scandal of me, scandalon. You are one of the people who pull the people off the path, because your word is now no longer the word of my Father all of these passages must be seen in the context with each other. Otherwise, people start using this precisely the opposite way, which is, well, I think it, so who are you to tell me that it's not the Bible? Who are you to say this is not God's Word? This is also to protect the accuser, because the one who is being accused Isn't liable for this ultimate sin of scandalizing the weaker brother. He is the weaker brother. You are more in danger of judgment when you bring this accusation against your brother. So you must be absolutely certain that everything that comes out of your mouth is only the word of God. Because otherwise, it would be better if you had a stone tied to your neck and you were dropped in the depths.
0: Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. The only correct way to hear this statement is in context of the mission. And the specific mission in chapter 18 is to the weaker brother. So we are not talking about your preference for a Tesla. We are talking about whether or not the mission is completed. The only thing you should ask for is the completion of the Father's mission to the lost sheep. So the point here is that if you submit to the rule of Scripture in your dealing with the lost sheep, you will receive and find the approval and the success that the rule itself bestows. You're not asking for anything except, what should I do in order not to scandalize the weaker brother, Lord? And the Lord's response in Matthew chapter 18 is, read the teaching that I handed down to you, Peter, by the hand of my apostle Paul. Be faithful to the keys that I entrusted to you. They're not your keys. If you are faithful to those keys, then the outcome will be the outcome that my Father desires, and you will have it done for you.
1: In chapter 16 this word is spoken specifically to Peter, but here it's spoken in the plural. Any one of you who would do this. So, anyone who thinks that chapter 16 shows that the keys belong to Peter is foolish, because here the exact same words are being spoken to all of Jesus' disciples. But the thing that is in common is a frightening one, which is that the word that comes from your mouth must be your Father's. It can't be yours. And like you said, Father, that's the program of this entire chapter, is that it's only about bringing back that lost sheep. So if your parish council gets in mind that it wants to pray for a new roof— Realize that that doesn't fall into the purview of Matthew chapter 18. But if there was someone from your congregation who is moving on a different path, by all means, whatever you can bring to the assistance of that weaker brother to bring them back in and to remove any scandal in your congregation, right? I remember Father Tom of Blessed Memory would say that on the last day There will be people who will be saved because they chose not to become Orthodox, because they understood God's Word better than the Orthodox did, and chose correctly by not following the path that the Orthodox were on, because they understood the path of Scripture. So we don't pray that people join us. We pray that people join Scripture, that people go on the path of Scripture, and we may not assume that we are among those people. So we always work to remove any scandal within ourselves or within our brother, whether they are coming to church on a regular basis or not, whether they are agreeable or not, whether they sound or look right or not, all of us are under judgment that we follow this teaching.
0: For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst— And all of our colleagues in the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies know exactly what we're going to say, that when we talk about two or three being gathered and Jesus being in their midst, we're talking about Bible study. Until I come, attend to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do that and you shall live. Do that! And the Father's teaching, his rule for the church, will protect your steps and keep you from becoming an obstacle for the weaker brother and keep you from becoming an obstacle on the path to the kingdom for yourself. But only if you gather together, two or three of you, to hold each other accountable to the teaching of God's instruction.
1: I remember I made the classical mistake on this verse in OT 101 with Father Paul, Old Testament introduction. And he asked the question, where is Jesus? (laughs) And I said, where two or three are gathered in my name. (laughs) And so Father Paul went to one of his favorite students in the front row, put his arm around him. He says, here's Jesus right here. (laughs) And he said, no, Jesus is in scripture that it only is where two or three are gathered in his name, okay? Now, people think in his name means that they just said Jesus. Here we are, Jesus, and now you're in his name. No, that's not what it means. The name in the Old Testament is much more weighty than Hashem. Right, Hashem. In rabbinic works, Hashem means God, that instead of actually pronouncing the name of God, you would say, Hashem, the name. This is how weighty this term is. At the end of Ezekiel, where God says, the Lord is there, is the name of the city. His name is there. But it's not his name because they all said, we love God, we love the Lord. That's not because they had a bunch of lip service and they sang a song. That's not why. It's because his Torah was being carried out there. This is the city that he established, and the citizens are his citizens of his kingdom because they follow the path. So gathering together in his name means that you gather together for his glory, for his weightiness, for his fame, by following his path and being loyal to his teaching. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. And many years, Father Paul. Many years.